<laughs> I love you too. <laughs> so welcome to Seacoast. My name is Josh. Walter's one of the pastors here at the church. I want to welcome you wherever you might be. If you're in one of the venues here at the Mount Pleasant campus or uh, online or at an offsite campus, just excited that you are here today with us, excited about what God's gonna do. As we get started, one uh, housekeeping, just announcement I wanna make and celebrate a portion of every dollar that's given here at Seacoast goes to help fund church planning through the Ark, which is the Association of Related Churches of which Pastor Greg is the president. And in the month of February, there are five new life-giving churches. We'd like to talk about those so that if you have family or loved ones in those areas, you can call them and say, hey, there is a new life-giving church in your community. And I love to celebrate it primarily because of my story. I think about when Katie and I showed up at Seacoast 10, 11 years ago, just in a rough season in life. We didn't move here for employment. It was a respite, and we needed the church to very much be the church to us. And so I'm just so thankful for Pastor Greg and Debbie's obedience to come and plant Seacoast Church. And it just gets me excited for all five of these to think 10 years from now, 20 years from now, how many people are gonna come to know Jesus? How many marriages are gonna be restored? And so five cities for you to be aware of, Lakewood, Ohio, Sacramento, California, Wesley, Chapel, Florida, Wethersfield, Connecticut, and Mayfield, Kentucky. Also, I want to give a shout out to Discover Church, which is launching on March 1st. My man, Mark Poland, right outside of Philly. They're actually meeting in the high school that Kobe Bryant attended. So just believing that you are going to bring hope and life to a grieving community. But as we get started there, I want to take just a minute and let's pray over each of those churches. Before we do that, let's celebrate them. Why don't we let them know we're excited for them, that we're with you, and we're praying for you. You. Thousands of people you'll never meet just believing in you and asking God for great things. So let's take a minute and we'll pray for them and get started. God, I thank you so much for each of these new life-giving churches and just thankful that we can be a part of a, a kingdom movement. You say the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. And I know that each of these couples, all of these launch teams have sacrificed, have prepared, have given generously of their time and resources in hopes that they might reach people who don't know you. And so we just pray into every life that's gonna be changed, every marriage that's gonna be restored, every kid's future and eternity that's gonna be altered. And God, we ask that you would do and accomplish immeasurably more than they could ask or imagine. Pray for our time together today. God, would our hearts be ready to encounter you, but our minds be open to receive your truth, and may we be a people who leave changed because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. So there was a group of guys wrapping up lunch on a construction site one day, and the site supervisor was named Dwayne. He was this big guy, one of those guys that when you shake their hand, their hand kind of swallows yours, you know what I'm talking about? He was a strong dude. He was the kind of guy that liked to throw his weight around a little bit. If there were two or three guys carrying something that he thought he could carry himself, he'd kind of muscle his way in like, watch out, get out of the way, I got it, you know, step in. And he especially liked to kind of poke fun at the old guys, the career construction workers who, they weren't there throwing their weight around anymore, but they brought a lot of knowledge to the job site. Well, they were wrapping up lunch one day, and there was this wheelbarrow full of block that had to be moved all the way across the construction site. And there was this old man standing beside the wheelbarrow. And Dwayne walks up, and he's like, watch out, old man, I'll get that, you know, get that wheelbarrow. And Old man was just tired of being like made fun of and pushed around, and he was standing beside a wheelbarrow himself, and so he said, you know what, Dwayne? I bet I can load this wheelbarrow up with something and carry it all the way across the job site that you can't carry back. And, and Dwayne said, oh yeah, old man, well, I'll bet you a week's pay. I know exactly what you make, and I'll take your money seven days a week. 
Old man said, all right, you're on. So he walks over to the empty wheelbarrow, grabs it by the handles, and looks over at Dwayne and says, all right, big guy, hop in. <laughs> you can't mess with an old man. They've been around the block too many times, right? How many of you would agree with me that regardless of the, the conflict that you're experiencing, the argument that you're in, the division or frustration you might be experiencing, that wisdom wins the day every time, all right? Last week, we kicked off a series on the book of James called Faith That Works. And to give you a little bit of context of the, the series, we believe it to be written by James, the brother of Jesus. And random fun fact for you about the book of James, several years ago, Pastor Chris Russo, our West Campus pastor, and I decided we were gonna memorize the book of James. And in the amount of time that it took me to memorize chapter one, Pastor Chris had memorized the whole book. And so I only say that because I think the West Campus needs to hold him accountable to doing a reciting. I can bring a cloak and a tunic. He can do it in character. You know, but it, was, it was written by James, the brother of Jesus. And we read in, uh, in verse one that it's to the 12 tribes that are scattered among the nations. The people of God were under intense persecution. They had had to flee their homes and communities. Their family rhythms had been disrupted. Friends that they once lived up the road from, they may not have seen anymore. They didn't all leave and go to one place, but they were scattered among the nations. And unlike you or I, if we had to flee from our home for some reason, there's a good chance when we went home to pack up the things that mattered most, we would have the word of God accessible to us. And that wasn't the case for them. At that time, communities had a scroll and a priest or a rabbi would read and teach and help them apply God's word. So as they've been scattered, they're now a people that for a season at least didn't have access to the word of God. And so James is writing them about faith that works. What does it look like for our faith to be lived out and live well that people would see and take note that we are marked as the children of God, that there's something different about us? And he starts off in verses two through five after addressing who he's writing to, to tell us, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith producer, produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Last week, Pastor Adam taught us that trials are a certainty. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. That's not a, that's not a choice for us. We're going to walk through trials, but it's not a given that we grow through trials. And this week, as we look on verses five through seven, moving on through the book, James gives us the key, the golden ticket as to how we can grow through trials, and it's as we seek and apply the wisdom of God to our lives. Verses five through seven there on your outline say this. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. I want you to take just a minute and think about the last trial that you walked through. It might have been something small, relatively insignificant, maybe an argument with a friend, uh, maybe something at the office that just frustrated you. Could have been something very significant, unexpected loss of a job or a medical diagnosis or the loss of a loved one. What was the last trial that you experienced? I've been through a lot, but in preparing for this message, the trial that came to mind was the passing of my dad, largely just because it's been a couple of years and I can still feel a lot of the emotions. I remember the state of mind that I was in, what it felt like to have my heart ripped open, have my mind blown a bit. 
And I remember so many of the moments, driving up the road, laying in bed at night, sitting at home watching TV, where all of a sudden, grief and tears would seem to come out of nowhere. And I would pray, God, would you comfort me? I know you're with me. Help me deal with this pain. Or if I knew my family was struggling, that I could say, God, be with them. Or if there was stuff that I had thought about that I wanted to talk with Dad, there was a, a series of time that passed where something would happen, I would go to call him, only to realize that I couldn't call him, right? So I would pray, God, will you be with me? Will you hear me? Can I talk to you about this? So many of the prayers and things that came to mind for me, but the one thing in preparing for this message in the midst of that trial is that I don't know that I ever asked God for wisdom. In the midst of the, the pain, if you're anything like me, I was thinking, how do I get through this trial? How do I get around this pain? How do I get on the other side of this crisis? God, help me. God, be with me. God, comfort me. But I never asked him, God, how do I grow through this? How many of you know it is a very different prayer to say, God, how do I grow through this instead of, God, how do I get through this? Wisdom isn't assumed on our parts. For all of us that call ourselves Christ followers, the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. You know the one thing that isn't on that list? Wisdom. And James tells us, if any of you lacks Wisdom, it's a present tense word in the original language, meaning that daily, things are gonna come about daily where we need to turn to him and ask for wisdom. It's not a one and done kind of prayer. And the original language that James uses is that if any of you are, much, um, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything, that word there, mature, means fullness, meaning that through our trials, we would consider them joy, believing that God is gonna use that trial to bring about in us the fullness of who he created us to be. Mature and complete, complete there means whole. That spiritually, mentally, that we would be whole, that we wouldn't step into today with the pain or baggage or insecurities or fear from our past. That trials would be God's chosen vehicle. How many of you would say you desire to be fully the man or woman God created you to be? That you desire to be whole and complete? About a dozen people, that's great. I'm excited for you, you know? Think we all would, that's what we desire for our lives. Well, God's chosen path for us to experience that is in trials. That we could see trials as the vehicle to bring about our growth and maturity, and the way that he does that is as we ask him for wisdom from above. So James goes on to give us a couple thoughts, just practical steps that we can take to ensure we grow through our trials, the first of which is there on your outline. I can grow through trials when I, number one, look to God. Look to God. He starts off in verse five saying, if any of you lacks wisdom. <clears throat> I've always kind of seen this verse similar to Philippians 4.13, which when I first came to Christ, this was one of those verses that was kind of like an anchor verse to me. I recite it all the time, but it says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. <clears throat> so if I was in the weight room, Lifting weights, you know, I can do all things through Christ. You know, like, just say it over and over, it would pump me up. If I was playing basketball, you know, I can do all things through Christ to give me strength. I would say that over and over and over as I attempted to dunk a basketball. That never happened for me. I know that's surprising for you, but I've come to give it up, the fact that apart from the Spirit of God, the power of God lifting me up, calling me to do more, he's just not going to allow me to dunk a basketball. This is one of those passages where context changes everything. What Paul is talking about is his pain and suffering. 
that he had been shipwrecked and abandoned and hungry. There's nights that he had been naked and cold and shipwrecked, that he had been stoned and beaten with, with rods. So much suffering in Jesus' name. And he ends that with an exclamation point of sorts to say, I can do all of this. I can endure all of this pain through Christ who gives me strength. Well, this verse is similar to that. Context changes everything about it. We read it as if there's some people who have wisdom and some people who don't. And James is saying, if any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God, right? And I've always just taken that and thought like, well, I'm one of those who are lacking, and so I'm gonna need to ask God for wisdom, and God will generously give it. But the context here of what James is talking about is in the face of our trials. When he first wrote this book, there weren't any verses or chapters. And so he said, consider it pure joy when you face trials, persevere in them so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Then the very next sentence says, if any of you lacks wisdom. And in the Greek, this is a conditional statement, which means it was a, a gracious way for James to say, since you lack wisdom. Meaning that in times of trial, whatever they may be, and I love how broad James is with it, whenever you face trials of many kinds, small ones, big ones, personal ones, family ones, professional ones, whatever the trial may be, we are all going to lack wisdom. We're not going to know what to do. What's the best next step for me to take. So typically, if you're anything like me, I tend to think that when I'm faced with a, with a trial, I need to do my best to figure it out, right? And it made me wonder, what if in times of trials you were presented with a stopwatch, whether it was a medical trial, physical, let's just say it was a financial trial. The moment you learn about it, your car broke down and the bill's gonna be high, or your, your insurance, you pay it every six months or yearly, you forgot about it, now all of a sudden, you're saddled with this bill. You're presented with a trial and somebody pushes start on the stopwatch. Uh, if you're like me, I tend to go first to the calendar. What day of the month is it? When is payday? How many days until payday? I'm like, okay. Uh, then I go to my online banking. How much do we have in the savings account? How much do we have in the checking account? What can I move over? Then I think about Katie. Uh, she had told me she was gonna go to Target and do some shopping. So I need to call her and not be too alarmed, but I need to try to tell her we need to pump the brakes on whatever you got in the buggy. So I'm like, hey, babe, what you doing? She's like, oh, I'm at Target. I'm like, oh, good. You know? <laughs> I'm like, well, I just remembered, remember this bill, you know? <laughs> you can just take it easy. And I'm praying, dear God, please help, you know? <laughs> so day goes by, I go to get in the car, and I'm getting in the car, and I think, man, I feel like I've heard a podcast, or maybe it was an audio book, about how you could address this with insurance and make the payment. And I was like, oh, it was an audio book. I pull it up on Audible, I listen to that on the way home, gives me some ideas, come home, see the kids, we sit down at the dinner table, all the while in the back of my mind, I'm stressing, worrying, thinking, how am I gonna meet this need? How am I gonna solve this problem? We get the kids down, go out and walk the dogs, only for me to bring it back up to Katie and us to talk about it, and before I realize it, 12 hours have gone by, like half a day, where I have thought, what should I do? How do I resolve this problem? Who do I know that's been through it? How, how can I reach out to them? Can I call them? All of my attempts, are, are horizontal, right? And that's what knowledge is. What do I know and what can I do? My reasoning, I've been at the center of all of my thinking, whereas wisdom from God is vertical. And the first thing that we have to do when we're presented with trials is look to him. There's a good picture of what that looks like in Proverbs 11:2. It says, pride leads to disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. When we pause in the face of any trial and look to God, 
It demands humility on our part because regardless of how educated or slick or sharp we think we are, when presented with a trial, looking to him helps bring about humility. It says, God, I can't do this on my own. What if maturity or growth for us as believers looked like us narrowing the gap between the time that we're presented with a trial and the amount of time it takes us to look to God? That it would bring about humility in us, that we would look to him, the source of wisdom, for how do I grow through this? I don't wanna come up with a solution to just get through it or just get over it or get around it. I wanna be fully who you created me to be, not lacking anything, whole in spirit. God, how do I grow through this trial, give me wisdom. So the first thing I've gotta do is look to God. Number two there on your outline is that I've got to ask God. The rest of verse five says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Everybody say, ask God. Ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. We tend to ask people questions that we know they can deliver on, right? If I have questions about a mortgage or a refi, I know to call my friend Jesse. In the past, I've looked through a bunch of things, done a lot of research on my own. Now I know that if I just call him early, tell him what I'm thinking, he's a specialist and he can deliver on any of my questions. If I got a question about our kids' sports schedule or date night or what we're doing as a family this weekend, I call Katie, right? She's the only one that shares with me in the mantle of leading our family and being a part of Team Walters. Any questions that I have about our family, it amazes me how much knowledge she holds for all of our kids' schedules. She can deliver. If I've got questions about home electronics, my father-in-law, Gibson, has done home installs. He's a part of discussion forums. He's got all these magazine subscriptions. Dude will disconnect all of his home electronics and then reconnect them to like enhance it. I'm lucky if I get my DVD player working the first time. You know what I mean? Just work it. Let me get the movie on the TV and we're gonna call it a win. But I know that he can deliver. We ask people questions that we know they can deliver on. And in times of trial, it brings about some questioning in us of do I really believe that God can deliver. What James is doing here in verse five is helping us apply verse two. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. See, typically when we step into a trial, we label it as trouble. This is not going to be good for me. This is gonna be hard, this is gonna be painful, this is gonna be difficult. We might even put horns on it and say it is from the enemy. But what James is inviting us to do here is don't see your trials as trouble, see your trials as training. If they've been sifted through the hand of God, if he wants to use them as the vehicle that you would be mature and complete, not lacking anything, we don't need to be afraid of them. We don't need to be discouraged or frustrated or lose time worrying about them. We just need to look to him and then ask him, God, what do you want me to do in this trial? How do you want me to handle this? And for any of you that have ever been through training, the best way for you to grow in a season of training is with a coach, right? If you were a baseball player, the coach could look at your swing as you step up to bat and see things that you don't see. When you go to swing, you're dropping your elbow or you're overstriding or you're pulling your head out. The coach keeps their eye on you and then gives you feedback to help them become the, the best version of you. Our daughter, Anna Jay, made the, uh, the varsity basketball team as a ninth grader. And as evident, she got all of her skills and hustle from her daddy, which I'm proud of. She can't dunk either, so you know it's the truth, right? <laughs> but her coach, her coach told me that one of the things that she loves most about Anna Jay 
was that at the end of each practice, Anna Jay would come up to her and say, coach, did you see anything that I could be working on? And she was the kind of player that when she got home from practice, she would pull out our recycling bin and the trash can and my golf clubs and like set them up like they were defenders and do all these dribbling drills around them in the driveway. And she asked coach, did you see anything I could be working on? Because she didn't wanna go home and work on her jump shot if coach said you really need to be working on your ball handling. She knew that coach was gonna give her some things to help her improve, help her get better. And in times of trial, God is our coach. But I know for each of us, whenever we're facing trials, to turn to God as our Father and ask Him for help stirs up a lot of stuff in us. Largely dependent on the kind of father that you had. Was he absent or angry? Was he an alcoholic? Do you have any context for being able to turn to a father in the midst of any trial and ask Him for help, believing that in some way He's gonna deliver? Knowing that this can be a challenge for us, James wanted to clear up exactly what the heart of the Father that we're turning to looks like. So I wanna break this verse down and look at each of these words. The first thing that he says about him as our Father is that he gives generously. Not a little dabble do ya, you know, like fifth grade art class with glue, y'all ever hear that? Not that, not sprinkle in a little bit of wisdom here or there, but that he gives generously. That word literally means liberally. He pours out wisdom on us. And what's unique to this word is that it's only used one time in the New Testament in this passage. It's also used one time in the Old Testament, and it's in reference to a person who's gotten themselves in such severe debt that they had to enslave themselves to the person they owed money to to pay off the debt. The Bible instructs that slave owner that after seven years, regardless of whether or not they've, they've paid what they owe in full, they are to set that person free and send them away generously with the provisions needed for their journey. They didn't earn it, they don't deserve it, they might not have even paid back the debt, but the owner was to be generous towards them. It's that same language that's the posture of our Father. In times of trials, whether we brought the trial on ourselves, whether someone else brought it into our lives, regardless of what we think we've earned or deserve, that he is a God who gives generously. It's not about me, it's about who he is. He gives generously. The second phrase there is to all. To all, and that word literally means to any kind or class individually. Meaning that when he looks down on us, he doesn't cattle call us or separate us by those that are deserving and those that are not. For every kind and class, to all people, he sees us individually. All of our trials are so nuanced. To the family we grew up in, to the challenges that we have, to our personal health and condition, to the context that we live in. He sees each of our trials individually and he is a father who gives generously to all without finding fault. This is typically where we would, we would dismiss ourselves. You know, maybe if we were honest, we would say he gives generous, generously to some depending on their fault, right? But that's not what it says. He gives generously to all without finding fault, regardless of what you've done. And for so many of us, we would think like, man, I haven't been a good father. I haven't been a good mother. I've been absent, I, I get angry. Why would God give me wisdom on parenting? I don't deserve it. I haven't honored him with my finances. Man, our financial situation is a mess. Why would God give me wisdom on my finances? I haven't been a good husband. I haven't been a good wife. Why would God give me wisdom on marriage or relationships? Because it's not about you. 
It's about him. He gives generously to all without finding fault every time. It says, ask and it will be given to you. I love the way James says trials of many kinds. He doesn't say just the big ones, just the small ones, just the ones of extreme loss or just the small ones, all the trials. We can turn to him. He gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Proverbs 2, 6 says, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding, meaning in the moments where we're lacking and we need it. We can turn to him. We can turn to his inspired written word. This book may not tell you which girl to marry, which guy to marry, may not tell you which college to go to, but I can tell you that. The University of South Carolina is where <laughs> you should go. If you wanna please God, that's why I'm just kidding. It, I'm not kidding, but I'm kidding. You know what I'm saying. But it does give you the principles that you are to live by. And as believers, when we enter into a relationship with him, we're given his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. That as we devour this written word of God, as we apply these principles to our lives, his spirit will lead us and guide us and give us all wisdom for whatever trial we might be walking through. So I can be sure to grow through my trials when I, number one, look to God. Number two, ask God. Number three there on the back of your outline, do what God says. Do what God says. James 1, six through eight says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. That word there, double-minded, literally means double-souled. And it's the picture of a person who's in the midst of a trial, and the first thing they do, like I do so often, is question, how do I get through this? How do I get around this? How do I stop this pain? How do I stop this bleeding? How do, I, how do I get through this? And so you call the people you know. You pick back up the books that you've read. You try to find some worldly wisdom to help you navigate this trial. While doing that, this person also wants the wisdom of God. God, what would you have me do? How would you have me resolve this? But just in case the price is too high or it's gonna cost too much or maybe it's gonna bring about pain in the short term, just in case wisdom from God proves to be too painful, I'm gonna keep this option open to pursue it and get through it. And what James is saying is that man shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. Because really the posture that James is presenting here is one of surrender. Are you gonna commit to doing what God tells you to do regardless of how it feels in the short term, trusting that you're gonna get through the trial and not just get back to life as normal, but you'll look and be and live more and more like him. That we can trust that he's gonna use it, that we might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Oftentimes in trials, it's not new knowledge, it's not new information that we need, but it's doing the stuff that we know to do. There's some stuff you've read in his word that you've learned at church on a weekend, wisdom that you've picked up from a friend that you simply need to apply to your life. You need to submit yourself to the wisdom of God and walk it out so that you might grow and not just get through your trials. James goes on to give a picture of kind of the contrast between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom there in chapter three, verses 13 through 16. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. 
Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Another place in scripture, it says it this way, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. Man, in the face of my trials, even as someone who loves God, believes in God, walks with God, so often I can ask him, God, how do I get through this? Instead of thinking, God, how do I grow through this? I don't wanna navigate the ways that seem right to man and just get past the pain. I want to grow through it, but that's only gonna happen as I look to him, as I humble myself and look to him as the source of wisdom. As I ask him, God, give me wisdom, confident of who he is, believing that he has good for me, that he gives generously, regardless of what I deserve, what I think I've earned, every time that he will deliver on it. You ever have any of those conversations or moments in your life that you look back on that maybe were years ago or decades ago and question what would have happened, like had you done something different? I had lunch with a mentor in 2005. And man, it's, I have no clue who else I met with or anything else I did in 2005. But this lunch stands out because in the midst of it, he gave me some wisdom that I, I knew was wisdom from God that I didn't act on. Katie and I were in a busy season of life. Uh, we had started having children and we'd never really stopped. But at that point, we had, <laughs> we had a few. We were getting our master's degrees in ministry. We had started acquiring some rental property. I would move into a house, fix it up, rent it out, and move on to the next house. And our family was like cheering us on. It was a source of pride for me. I was proud of it. And, and he told me that day at lunch, he said, Josh, I've been praying for you, and I feel like God said you need to sell those rental properties. Uh, pick it up later in life, but you're gonna pay for it somewhere, and I'm afraid it's gonna be in your marriage or family, and so uh, just, just pray about it. I think you need to sell them. You can pick it back up later. Once the kids are older, it's kind of a hobby. You enjoy it. And I remember that day at lunch shaking my head yes, knowing it was wisdom from God that I needed to do that. But inside, I was thinking, there ain't no way. And I look back on that and think, man, and I wouldn't change anything about our story. Uh, little did I know, three years later, our marriage would near fall apart. Katie was at a just tough place, didn't know if she loved me anymore, didn't wanna be with me anymore. Everything in 2005 that I would have said felt stable and solid and beautiful was the stuff that was most precious to me. Come 2008, I near lost it all. And I couldn't control any of it. And I wouldn't change any of our story. I'm so thankful for and blessed by what God has done and where we are today. But I can't help but look back at lunch that day and think, man, if that's what God did through my disobedience, what might he have done through my obedience? What kind of blessing would he have brought about in my life if I would have done what he said do? What years of pain might we have avoided? What trials could we have avoided if I would have just walked out what he said do? Oftentimes, church, we know what we need to do, but we don't feel the pressure to walk it out. We don't believe that his heart for us is good. His desire is that we might be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We can be certain this year, 2020, you are going to have trials. There are going to be seasons of pain. And you can get through them like you always have, or you can commit that this year, I am gonna grow through them, no matter what they are. I'm gonna look to him as my source of wisdom. I'm gonna ask him, God, how would you have me grow through this? And I'm gonna commit ahead of time that I'm gonna do what he calls me to do, 
regardless of what it might feel like in the short term. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this book, and I'm just thankful for the kind of God that you are. I have no other relationship like it. I don't have a context for it personally. I tend to love and give conditionally based on what a situation deserves or what my kids have done. But every single time you look at me with eyes of love and in moments where I am lacking, you give generously without finding fault. I'm thankful, God, that that truth is available for all of us today, that no matter what trial we might be walking in or in the thick of, no matter what trial we're walking out of or maybe walking into, God, that we can turn to you as our Father, that your heart for us is to grow us up, to mature us, that we would become the full measure of who you had in mind when you created us. Be with us today as we respond. In Jesus' name, amen.